to Woodside Community Church. My name is Matthew Shores. We are very, very glad that you are here. Uh, please take out your Bibles if you've got one and turn to Mark chapter 14, uh, page 851, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, page 851. Uh, we have been now over a year walking slowly, verse by verse, um, through the book of Mark. Uh, we're, we're coming to the end. We're coming towards uh, close. Um, Jesus has now been betrayed. He's been arrested. He's been handed over to the Sanhedrin, and um, they're, they're going to kill him. They're, they're trying to figure out how. Judas has done his deed. Um, he's, he's betrayed Jesus. He's turned him over. He got paid. He got his money, and now he's, he's gone. Remember, the theme of this chapter of Mark 14 is, is the abandonment of Jesus. This whole chapter is a step-by-step progression of Jesus being abandoned by everyone. And last week, we got kind of this, this little glimpse um, behind the scenes into the anguish of Jesus, the, the man of sorrows who is acquainted, acquainted with grief. We saw him absolutely stagger and struggle when he was faced with what was about to happen. And remember, it's not because he was about to be crucified physically. Right? Yeah, that, that was bad enough. Right? Thousands of people got crucified um, that exact same way. Thousands of people handled it better than Jesus did. Right? Jesus was facing much more and much worse than physical crucifixion. He was facing something that we cannot even begin to fathom. Because remember last week we talked about the cup. Remember Jesus was facing the wrath of God against the sin of all of those for whom he was about to die. Jesus was about to be made sin. The sinless, spotless one made into sin. He was going to take our place. He was going to take all our punishment at once. The, the full and the just fury of God's wrath against our sin. And it shook Jesus to the core. But remember, we saw him last week. He stared into the flames. He looked into the, the fiery furnace of God's fury and separation from God. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he takes the cup and he drains it to the last drop. That deciding moment, the deciding moment was in that garden. Right? Heaven and hell were in the balance and he obeyed the Father. And the Father absolutely crushed him for it. That's what is happening here in these last few weeks. Now this morning, we're going to conclude chapter 14. We're going to conclude the abandonment of Jesus. And before us, we have not just one trial, but actually two trials. We're going to look together at the trial of Peter compared to the trial of Jesus. And the response to each of them, to each of their trials, is completely different. And that's all we're going to look at. I want to look at the, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, juxtaposed to the absolute faithlessness of Peter. Right? And we'll kind of see how that's us. Right? We're, we're Peter. Jesus is there in that room because of us. So look down at Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53. I'll read to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly. You are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you, uh, as Pastor Johanan echoed, that we have the freedom, Father, to gather and to worship, um, Lord, and to sit under your word. I pray that we would never take that for granted. We, we pray for him. We pray for his ministry and the people of northern India, Lord, that you would just bring a great awakening, Father, that the gospel would take over in that region. There are so many people there, um, Lord, who do not know you, um, Lord, and we ask that you would do a great work. Um, in that place. And Lord, I ask right now that you would do a work in our hearts um, through your word. Um, Lord, I just pray that the great faithfulness of Jesus would shine forth. Father, that he came and loved us and died for us when we were completely faithless, when we had rejected him and when we had run from him. Father, glorify your son Jesus, Father, and in this time. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen. Right, so last week, remember, Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. He's in the garden. Um, he, he's praying. And Judas comes. He betrays him. A whole, basically, army of Roman soldiers. They take Jesus, and they take him back into the city of Jerusalem. But what is interesting is that they take him to the home of the high priest. His name is Caiaphas. Mark doesn't tell us his name, but Matthew does. Caiaphas, the high priest. And it's weird that they take him to his house because it's probably about two or three in the morning. And this is supposed to be a trial, but it turns out to, to not be a trial at all. These were the Pharisees, remember. These were the religious leaders. These guys valued the law very highly. They had repeatedly, remember, they, they had jumped on Jesus and attacked him because they thought that he didn't value or care about the law. Well, listen to what their law says about trials. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18 says, God says, You shall appoint judges and officers, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert 
justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. Justice and only justice you shall follow. Right? Justice was very important um, to the Jewish people. It was very important to God's law. But everything that they did here in this trial um, completely rejected all concepts of justice. Trials were only to be conducted in the temple. Right? That's, that was the courtroom. Well, this trial was conducted in the house of Caiaphas. Um, trials were never to be conducted at night. We don't have a single um, recorded example of them having a trial at night. This one is at 2 or 3 in the morning. No trial was allowed to be, had, to be held on the Sabbath or the day before the Sabbath. This trial is on the day before the Sabbath. In capital cases, cases um, that, that demand death, right? You, it was required that there be two eyewitnesses and that their testimony perfectly agreed. Well, here, uh, Mark tells us that their testimony did not agree. In capital cases, when there was a conviction, it was required that they reconvene 24 hours later to make sure that there had not been a miscarriage of justice, to make sure that they didn't do things hastily. Jesus would be dead well before that 24 hours would come up. This was no trial. There was no concern for justice here. This was a witch hunt. Right? They were searching for anything that they could possibly find um, for which to kill Jesus. So they start bringing in their witnesses. Verse 55 says they're seeking testimony against him. Matthew says that it is false testimony. Verse 60, 56 says many come in to bear this false witness, but nobody can agree on anything. The only semi-truth they can come up with was the claim that someone heard Jesus say that he would destroy the temple. Well, that's kind of, that, there's a hint of truth there. That's almost what he said, but not exactly. In John 2, 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He never threatened that he would destroy the temple. He said, if it's destroyed, he will raise it in three days. But then John, remember, clarifies what it was that Jesus was talking about. He says he was speaking about the temple of his body, right? They just need anything, right? They're, they're grasping for straws. Anything that they could get to convict and kill Jesus with, but they had nothing. Which really shouldn't surprise us, right? Because this was the sinless, spotless one. This was Jesus Christ, the man of whom Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.22. He says, He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There was to be no real justice in that place that night. Whatever they had to do, they would do it. This man must die. And Caiaphas, the high priest, starts getting frustrated with their failures. We're getting nowhere. He, Jesus isn't saying anything. Have, have you nothing to say in your own defense? He says, no response. But then look at what the high priest says in verse um, 61. This is absolutely brilliant on Mark's part. The high priest says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Right, first, that word blessed is what is called a circumlocution. Sounds fancy. It's not. A circumlocution. Circum just means around, right? Locution just means to speak, right? It's a way to speak around something. It was a way to avoid having to say something. The Jews thought that God's name was so holy that it should not be spoken. Even today, if you go on a Jewish website online, and if they're typing God's name, or if they're typing God, they will type out G dash 
B, right? To prevent from writing or saying his name. So when he says blessed here, he's, he's saying God. He's just avoiding having to say it. So what is he saying? His question is, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Does that sound familiar, right? Well, it should sound familiar because the very first verse of this book, the, the topic sentence, the theme of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? But remember, right, we're reading in English here a translation of what Mark originally wrote in Greek. And in Greek, there are no question marks. There is no punctuation in ancient Greek, right? In, in the Greek, the words of the high priest are a statement, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. It's a statement with an implied question. And what's ironic then is that this is the fullest confession of the person of Jesus in the whole book of Mark. Remember back in chapter 8, Peter had said, you are the Christ. But he doesn't mention anything about him being the Son of God. It is ironically the high priest who is about to have Jesus murdered here that most accurately and truly confesses who Jesus is. Though he does so almost unwittingly. You are the Christ, the Son of God. The whole book has been building to this point. Remember, the book of Mark is a two-act play. Right? The first half is about the identity of Jesus. Mark is making his case that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. The second half of Mark has been all about the mission of Jesus. What this Messiah, this Son of God, has come to do. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. The Messiah was the one in the Old Testament who had been promised for thousands and thousands of years. This one that was going to come and rescue and redeem his people. Right? That's who Jesus is. But he's not just some deliverer. He's not just a Messiah. He is also the Son of God. Meaning he's not just a man. He's not just another guy. He is divine. He is God himself. And Mark spends his whole book showing us and giving evidences and proofs who this Jesus was, the Messiah, the Son of God. Right, so the high priest has gotten wind of these claims about himself. So he, he's frustrated. He's unable to find anything to hold against Jesus because Jesus never did anything wrong. So he just straight up asks him, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And look at Jesus' answer in verse 62, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Finally, the secret is out. Remember, we haven't talked about it in a few weeks, but an important theme in this book is the messianic secret. Remember, all the time, people keep coming and trying to confess publicly who Jesus is and reveal his identity. And every time, Jesus silences them. Remember, in the very first chapter, Jesus encounters a man with a demon who says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebukes him, remember, and says, be silent. At the end of that chapter, Jesus heals a leper. And what does he say to the leper? See that you say nothing to anyone. In chapter 3, verse 11, more spirits see Jesus and cry out, you are the Son of God. But verse 12 says, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. In chapter 8, verse 29, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And verse 30 says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
secrets, right? Don't tell anyone. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had gone to great lengths to keep his identity somewhat of a secret. He revealed it to the disciples, but he had not fully revealed it publicly. Why? Well, because of who he is and what he had come to do. Because if you remember, everyone at that time had a terribly mistaken notion of what the Messiah was going to do. They wanted this big, grand, military leader. They wanted a political ruler. They wanted someone who would wipe out the Romans and reestablish the great, glorious kingdom of Israel. But that's not what Jesus had come to do. He was a very different and very unexpected Messiah. So he had to keep his identity somewhat of a secret so that he could accomplish what he had come to do. But here now, all of a sudden, hours before his death, he is asked, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he says, I am. Those two words themselves may have been kind of a thunderous claim to be God. It's hard to say for sure. But if you remember all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, remember God reveals himself to Moses and he reveals his name to be I am who I am. Say to the people that I am has sent you. That's Yahweh. That's what Yahweh, God's personal name means, I am. And in John 8, 58, Jesus very clearly takes this name for himself. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, not I was, before Abraham was, I am, ego, I, me. That's Yahweh in the Greek. So they picked up stones to throw at him and to kill him. He claimed to be God, right, as blasphemy according to them, so they tried to kill him. And that may be what Jesus is claiming here as well. And he says, I am. The secret is out. He is finally, openly confessing who he really is. And even if those words are not a claim to be God, the rest of his answer clearly is. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Remember, that comes from two passages that we've already looked at. He takes that answer from Psalm 110 and from Daniel 7. In Psalm 110, King David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? That is God speaking to the Messiah. And the point is that in them, David refers to both of them as his Lord. Lord God and Lord um, Messiah. Right? So Jesus says, I am that Messiah. I am seated at the right hand of God. I am equal with God and I am the Lord of David. Right? I am the Son of Man, he says then. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7. Remember that passage? It says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Right? God the Father, the Ancient of Days, gives to this Son of Man glory and a kingdom. Listen, God shares his glory with no one. Right? So the Son of Man must also be God. And we saw back in chapter 13 that Jesus took this passage and used this imagery in reference to the coming judgment against Israel. The Son of Man is the judge. In John 5.22, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. 
In Acts 10.42, Peter says, in reference to Jesus, He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus comes the first time in grace. The second time He comes, He comes in glory, and He comes as the judge. And here, then, is the great irony of what is happening in these verses. Jesus, the creator, the sustainer, the savior, and the judge of the universe is being judged by these mortal, wicked men. It is the ultimate role reversal. Man and God have switched positions. A couple months ago, I mentioned a letter um, from the writer C.S. Lewis. Remember, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity, a um, really famous writer. He has another little book called God in the Dock. And I, I had it on my bookshelf, and I never understood what that meant. I mean, you know, imagine God kind of laying out on a dock, like, well, what does this language mean? But we, we don't use the word like this anymore. But a dock was used to refer to where the defendant would sit during a trial. Right? The dock was where the one who was being judged, the one who was on trial, um, sat. And Lewis writes in this letter, he says, we used to, he says, the ancient men used to approach God as the accused person approaches the judge. But for the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. The important thing is that man now is on the bench and God is in the dock. See what he's saying? He's saying that now we approach God as if we are the judge and he is the one that is being judged. And that is what is going on here in our passage. And that is, as C.S. Lewis points out, is largely how people relate to God today. And if you really think about it, this, this kind of is the core. This is the root of all sin. Remember all the way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. What is it that Satan says to Eve in chapter 3, verse 5? She, he says, you will be like God. And she was unable to resist that fruit. And that is ultimately what sin is. It is our desire to be God. It is our desire to shed all authority, to shed all rules, and to do whatever we want. We rule. We're the boss. We're in charge. There's a heavy metal musician. This is a random reference. This guy's name is, is Alice Cooper. Right? You've probably heard of Alice Cooper. He's got a bunch of famous um, songs. School's Out. That's very appropriate for this time. School's Out for Summer. Right? You know that song? Uh, he sings that. Um, he sings No More Mr. Nice Guy, No More Mr. Clean. Right? There's a couple of really famous songs that he sings. I mean, there's a reason for this. Don't go listen to it. It's terrible sometimes. But he has another song that, I, that I'm sure that you haven't heard of. But the lyrics to that song are exactly what we're talking about. This is what Alice Cooper, the heavy metal musician, writes in one of his songs. He says, ain't going to spend my life being no one's fool. I was born to rock, and I was born to rule. I never learned to bow, bend, or crawl to any known authority. I really want to build my statue tall. I just want to be God. At least he is honest. Because again, we all do the exact same thing. But here he's at least putting a voice behind it and being honest with his desire. I just want to be God. That is sin, right? That is, it is our deep-seated desire to shed all authority and to be God ourselves. And that is why sin is so serious. People always kind of wonder, like, well, what's the big deal? Why is God so angry about sin? No, this is why God is so angry about sin. Because if we are acting as God, if we are the God of our lives, then that means that God is not. Right? We have displaced him. We have removed him from his rightful place. 
And that is cosmic treason. Right? We have looked at the king and said, no, nope, you're not the king, I am the king. That's treason. And treason today is one of still the most serious offenses. It is an offense that must be punished and an offense that demands a heavy weight punishment. Historically, the punishment for treason has always been death. Right? In 1789, the very first Congress of this country got together and they wrote this. If any person owing allegiance to the United States of America shall levy war against them or shall adhere to their enemies, such person, if they are judged guilty of treason against the United States, they shall suffer death. Right? Treason is the highest of crimes. It demands death. And the Bible tells us that we are all guilty of treason. We all look to God, the creator and sustainer and king of the universe, and say, not thy will, but my will be done. Right? We move him aside, we set ourselves above him, and we judge God. Right? Christians even do this today, and this, this drives me crazy, right? One of the things that I most hate hearing is when a Christian says something to the effect of, oh, I can I could never believe in a God who would do that. Right? If God would do that, he would, that would be unfair or that would be unjust for God to do that. Right? Be, be very careful when you say such things. Because if God actually does that thing, that thing that you are saying that you hate so much, then that places you in a very unfortunate position. Right? Christians always do this for some reason in reference to election. Right? God would never choose um, to save some. That's unfair. But be careful when you say that. Because again, what do we do with all these other verses? Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Matthew 11.27, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 6.65, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. John 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And I can go on and on and on. Are we willing to let God be God and to let what the Bible reveals about Him to be true, or are we going to continue to insist that He must answer to us and that He must conform to our standards of what He should be like and what He should do? Are we going to let God be on the bench, or are we going to relegate God to the dock? Listen, it's very easy to vilify the religious leaders here in this trial. Oh, they're judging Jesus. They're, they're so terrible. But we do the exact same thing all the time. Every time we try to declare what God should be like and what he can't do, we're doing the same thing that they are doing. Right? Every time that we sin, actually, we're doing the same thing that they are doing. Because when we sin, we try and switch places with God. We said, no. You're wrong here. This is what I choose. I am right. Sorry, God. You don't know the best. I, I do. I know what's best. We then are, in effect, judging God. And Jesus is here in this very situation, suffering this abuse, both verbal and physical, for this very reason. He is here being judged by these men because we have already tried to judge him and declared ourselves to be God. Right? Jesus is here because of our sin. It's Amazing, right? It is, it is grace, and it is utterly unique among all religions and philosophies. Think about it. What we do, this is what sin is. We demote God, we judge Him, and what does He do in response? This is what's so amazing. 
he demotes himself and then he judges himself and then suffers and dies in our place. He should have wiped us out. But instead, he wipes Jesus out to save us. It is the ultimate role reversal. Man attempts to judge God and in response, God ends up judging himself to save us. That's the gospel. In response to our sin and rejection and judgment of him, he puts himself on the dock. He, that's the gospel. That is what he does for sinners. Right? Go back to the text just briefly. Remember, he's finally now re revealed um, who he really is. He, he very um, clearly claims to be God. And what does the high priest do in response? He, he rips his robes. Right? This, is, this is blasphemy. Right? That was the ultimate kind of sign of mourning and disgust if he ripped your robes. And every single one of them condemned him to death. And the humiliation and the torture begins, which we'll cover in detail in the next few weeks. He's spit on, he's beaten, he's mocked. The creator, God of the universe, omnipotent in power, all good, and he takes it all. He is faithful to the end. But that brings us to Peter. Peter responds to his trial much differently than Jesus does here. Right here, here's Peter, the leader, outspoken, bold, and confident. Remember in Mark 8, 29, he says, You are the Christ. In John 6, 68, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Just a few hours earlier in verse 31, he emphatically said, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. But here he is, having already abandoned Jesus. Now he is following from a distance. Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. And he was about to fail even at that. Right, keep in mind that, that this story doesn't happen after the trial of Jesus. Right? The verses come after, but these two things are happening at the exact same time. Right, two trials going on, one inside, one outside, one Jesus, one Peter, at the exact same time over about a two-hour period. Peter, he makes his way into the courtyard. He wants to get by the fire. It gets cold in Jerusalem at night. But he's recognized by this little um, servant girl. And that servant girl could mean like a 12 or 13-year-old tiny little girl, right? Not very intimidating, um, not very scary, but it's this, it's this nice little girl that confronts um, Peter and says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Verse 68 says, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He tries to back away, he tries to, to hide in the shadows, but she is a persistent 12-year-old, and she says, this man is one of them. And for a second time, he denies it. Others kind of take up the charge. Certainly, you are one of them, for you are Galilean. Remember, Matthew said that they recognized him because of his accent. Right? Galileans, those are northerners. Jerusalem, they are the southerners. And they had very different accents. You can tell that I'm not from here based upon my accent. Well, they hear Peter and they know that he is a Galilean. And if he is a Galilean, he must be with Jesus. But he denies it a third time, even more intensely. Verse 71, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. May God strike me dead. Right? I swear in my mother's grave. Whatever he's saying, he's raining down curses and he's swearing against himself, I do not know this man. And in Luke's account of Peter's denial, in chapter 22, um, verse 61, when the rooster crows, Luke writes, 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Can you imagine that look? Right? Jesus is in an upper room somewhere looking out over the courtyard. He's probably sitting at a window. And he catches Peter's eye at that exact moment when he denies him the third time. And Peter is just absolutely devastated and he, he flees. He is out of there. And we will not see Peter again in this book. None of the Gospels mention Peter being at the crucifixion of Jesus. His denial and his abandonment was complete. Peter was put on trial and he failed miserably, right? He had two completely different trials with two completely different outcomes. Um, there's one pastor I love, Pastor Kevin Young. He masterfully draws out a couple um, contrasts here. Jesus is attacked by false witnesses, but Jesus makes a true confession. Peter is approached by true witnesses, and Peter makes a false confession. Jesus is confronted by the most powerful men in Jerusalem, yet he stands his ground. Peter is confronted by some of the weakest people in Jerusalem, a little slave girl, and he crumbles. For Jesus, everything happened exactly as he had predicted. For Peter, everything happens the opposite of what he had predicted. Jesus ends up looking like a defeated Messiah through no fault of his own. And Peter looks like a defeated disciple through nobody's fault but his own. Two men, two trials, two completely different outcomes. The faithfulness of Jesus shines forth extra bright against the backdrop of the faithlessness of Peter. Jesus must pass his trial precisely because Peter so miserably fails his. And because we all likewise have failed countless trials and have denied him ourselves. Listen, there's the point of this passage on Peter. You are Peter. I am Peter. We may have never uttered the words, I deny Jesus, or I, I do not know him, but we have all, every one of us, denied him. We have all done it with our actions, we have done it with our sins, we have done it with our silence. I don't know how many times in high school I found myself putting my head down and kind of drifting towards the back and not speaking up when I should have spoken up. We have all done it. We have all denied Jesus with our sin because that is what we do every time we sin. We deny Christ. We remove him from his rightful place and we put ourselves there and say, not thy will, but mine. That is denying Christ just like Peter. We are the faithless ones. But why? Why does Peter fail so miserably here? Why do we all fail so frequently? Again, because I think of our serious failure to take um, seriously our sin nature. Right? Peter was extremely cocky and confident. Oh, Jesus, I will never deny you. He was not giving enough consideration to his sin nature. He was denying the doctrine of our radical depravity, of our, our fall into sin, that it was so complete that it affected every single part of our being. When Peter, or when Jesus told Peter that Peter was going to deny him, Peter should have fallen down on his face and cried out, Yes, Lord, I, I feel it. I feel that I am capable of that. Have mercy on me, Jesus. Rescue me. He should have cried out with Paul in Romans chapter 7, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing 
that I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. The wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is when you begin to forget who you are and start to feel pretty good and pretty confident about how you are doing. That is when you are actually in the most danger. That's where Peter was. He ignored the danger of the indwelling sin in his heart. We have got to be realistic about sin, about, or, or if we're not, our fall will be just as big as Peter's. Right? It's actually when you begin to understand just how sinful you are, by God's grace, He doesn't show us this all at once. He reveals it to us slowly over time. But ironically, it's as you start to realize and understand how sinful you actually are, that God's grace then starts to really actually look amazing. It's when you begin to understand the sin that remains in your heart that you begin to learn to completely rely on His on grace for everything. Right? We can do nothing on our own power. If we are left to ourselves, we will all end up like Peter. That's why I always tell people, one of the best signs that you're really starting to get this and that you're really starting to grow is that you realize that you're a lot more sinful than you thought. Right? What's, what's kind of paradoxical about, about Christian growth is that the more you mature, the more you become, of your, the more aware you become of your sin. And you kind of keep think, oh man, what's, what's wrong with me? Where, where's all this sin? No, it's always been there. God is revealing it to you. God is, God is working on you and growing you. It's when you don't um, realize this. It's when you're not aware of the sin in your life. That's when I'm, I'm concerned. Yeah, come to me and talk, oh, I'm really struggling with this. There's so much sin. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. We can work with that. Come to me and say, oh, no, I'm doing really good. not really struggling with anything. Well, that's when I start to think, okay, well, what's actually going on here, right? We've got to be aware of the indwelling sin in our lives or we will end up just like Peter. But the really, really good news is that this isn't the end of the story for Peter. Right? Peter doesn't show back up in the book of Mark. One of the very last verses of the book is such an amazing Verse. Because remember, they, the women, they go to the tomb. Jesus isn't there, and the angels speak to them. And what do they say? They say, go and tell Peter. Why? Why go and tell Peter? Look, this is who this Peter is. Why would you go and tell this man that? Because this isn't the end of the story. We'll look in John, where we give kind of the, the, the restoration. Jesus comes in, and he specifically restores Peter. Right? The good news is that Jesus is up in that room under trial so that he can rescue us and redeem us from our very denials of him. He is in that room precisely because Peter is denying him. Right? So there's grace, there's, there's hope for forgiveness and restoration. This isn't the end of the story. I want to close by, by going back to that passage written by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 33, which we read earlier. This is a really fascinating passage. Remember, he's writing about Jesus, and it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Right? That's, that's what's happening here in the trial. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He stayed silent. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But listen to this last part. It says, But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Think about that. We have just said that there was to be absolutely no justice on this night. Right? Jesus, the sinless, spotless one, the only one who had never done anything wrong, he, the only one who had never done anything that demanded justice, this Jesus was about to be put to death. Nothing deserving of death, yet he dies. 
But Peter says that he was entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How, right? How could this be just? This seems to be the most unjust thing to have ever happened, right? So God only judges justly. Last week and this week, we see that God is judging Jesus, right? Thus, God must have judged Jesus justly. Well, the passage there in 1 Peter keeps going in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And if that's the case then, that trial that night, not the sham trial of man, but the trial of God was absolutely just because Jesus bore our sins. Right? He who knew no sin was made to be sin. Jesus is switching places with me. Right? He took on my record of everything that I deserved um, for all the bad things that I've done and all the, the penalties those, those earned. He takes all of that. In a representative sense, Jesus Christ became Matthew Shores. When God poured out his wrath and he punished Jesus, he was punishing Jesus for my sins. God judges justly and God judged Jesus. And he did it for my sins. That's the good news, right? That's the gospel. Jesus in my place. Jesus in Peter's place. He, he took Peter's place and he was punished for the very sin of denying Christ. Christ is punished for denying Christ. Right? Precisely um, because Peter and all of us are so faithless, Jesus comes and he is faithful to the end. He succeeds where we have failed so miserably. He is punished and dies so that we can be rewarded and live. So what is happening here in this passage is that God is willingly putting himself in the dock. And starting next week, we're going to see him then willingly put himself on the executing block and die to rescue this rebellious people, right? And there's the difference. Remember, religion, it's always man sacrificing and dying for God. But in the gospel, here we see that it is actually God sacrificing and dying for man, right? That is the good news. Jesus comes, the judge, and he puts himself on trial for you. He is judged in your place so that you don't have to be. And that's the good news, right? That's, that's your only hope. Sin deserves death, and it will be paid for. Either you're going to pay for it, or Christ is here in this passage, and the passage is to come paying for it for you. God in the dark, willingly suffering and dying in our place. The just one, the judge, being judged for the forgiveness of sinners. Let's, let's close and then go to him in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your amazing plan of salvation, um, Lord. Father, that when we were Peter, when we had all likewise rejected you and run from you and denied you and sinned against you, Father, um, you came yourself in the person of Jesus Christ, Father, to put yourself on the block, to suffer and to die in our place. Father, you demand the payment for sin, and the good news is that you provide that payment for us, um, Lord. Father, you have submitted yourself um, in, through Jesus to terrible suffering and evil and sin and death, um, Lord.
Lord, so that you can rescue us from all of those things, um, Lord. That is good news, um, Lord. I pray that we would see that. Father, show us the sinless one. Show us how faithful Jesus Christ is to the end and how he does it for us, the faithless ones, um, Lord. Father, I pray that you would just open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Show us um, what it is that he has done for us. Father, I pray for those in here who do not um, know this, who have not experienced um, your grace, Lord. I pray that you would work in their hearts and grant them faith and repentance. Bring them from death to life. Father, save sinners. And I ask that through your word you would also sanctify those sinners that you have already saved, um, Lord. Because, Father, we confess that we are Peter. Father, we are so prone to deny you um, through our actions, um, Lord, through our silence and then through our sin. But, Father, thank you that Jesus Christ is in that room on that trial. He's about to go to that cross, Father, for those sins, um, Lord, Father. He pays it all. And there is now, therefore, no condemnation. Father, there's no more wrath. There's no more judgment um, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.